So normally, I would be coming to Mark 6 this morning, looking at the very same passage of Scripture that was covered last week, Jesus' first commission to his apostles. But since we heard about that last week in Luke's Gospel, today I want us to do something a little different. I want us to go back in time in Mark's Gospel so that we can consider the type of men that Jesus chose to be among his 12 apostles And we'll be looking at one man in particular this morning. If you think about the character of these men and the type of men they were, you you have to ask, why did he choose them, right? I mean, were these the well-known theologians of the day? No. Were these the great scholars of the day? No. Were these the most influential men of the day? Nope. None of those things, right? No, these, these men were just common men. But these men were radically transformed by Christ's mercy and his power when he came in contact with them. And they were used by God as a result of that. They were used by God. These common men were used by God to turn the world upside down, the writer of Acts tells us. And in many ways, I think that we as Christians, we we do relate to these men. We relate to their commonness, right? We relate to their common characteristics, As mere men. But then we often separate ourselves from their testimonies because we know that we are not called to be apostles, right? There are no more apostles today. We stand on their foundation. There aren't any more being called to be apostles at this time. But I think it's a mistake for us to think that though we are not called to be apostles today, that we can't simply look at their testimony and be encouraged and challenged this morning. I think we still have to remember that every Christian is called to testify to the very same power and mercy that transformed these men into the servants of God that they became as apostles. And we can lose sight of this and become discouraged if we're not careful. We can think, what would God do with a man like me or a woman like me? I'm not going to be an apostle. I'm just here. I'm existing as a Christian. I'm getting through life and I'm going to heaven, but, but I'm not sure what I'm really called to do. And I'm not sure that I'm even qualified to do much more than that because of my past. And so sometimes we, we let things in the past cloud our vision of what God has for us in the present. We often let past failures in following Jesus or present sins cloud our minds and allow us to think that we can never be used by God Or in his kingdom because of all the sins of our past or the present failures in our life at this time. And that's a mistake. I think one of the apostles would tell you that face to face if he was able to today. That one man that I'm speaking of is a man named Levi. He, among all the apostles, would probably think what I just said people think. They, They think our past is going to dictate our present usefulness to God. And he probably thought that at one point in his life. Now, Levi, as you all know, is better known to us as Matthew, right? So I want to go back today, back in time in Matthew, in Mark's gospel, and look at Levi's testimony in Mark chapter 2. And and here's what I want to do. I want to do this. um, I want to do this to give you hope this morning, to give you hope in God's redeeming grace today. Your life has been purchased by Christ and set apart for his glory. 
And he will take even the failures of your past and transform them in the present to magnify his grace. And I think Levi's testimony illustrates that. I think it puts the merciful and effectual power of God's grace on full display for us. And some of you here just might need to hear that. You might need to be reminded of that this morning. So I pray that in in this testimony that we read here in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, I pray that both the sinners unregenerate among us and the weak saints both find their hope today in the merciful God who drew near to Levi and transformed his past and his present condition. And see, we see something here. God, God is uniquely doing something here that the people of Levi's day didn't quite understand. God is entering into this personal interaction with this man. And God himself is coming near to this needy one to rescue him. And he's doing it by his grace, not because Levi was worthy of the rescue itself. And we see that testimony throughout the book of Mark over and over again. In, in Mark's gospel, think about this. In Mark's gospel, we, we find the good news that, that Jesus came to earth for men like Levi. The good news that he, he came to mercifully and powerfully save people who cannot save themselves. Just think of the, the few that we've already covered. Think of the people like, like the, uh, the defiled leper that Jesus embraced. Think about the lame beggar, the man with the withered hand, the demoniac, and now even Levi, the tax collector. This is, this is a great reminder of the power of God's mercy and grace in redeeming a life. Redeeming the past and using you in the present for his glory. So let's look at Mark two thirteen to 15 this morning. I'm going to read it to you, then we'll go through it. Speaking of Jesus, who had just been ministering to a large crowd of people, verse 13 says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose. And followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I'm just going to stop there. I know what it goes on to say. He came for the needy, he came for the sick, not the healthy, not the righteous. But I want you to understand how amazing this text is. And to understand it, you have to understand how needy Levi is, okay? Let me tell you why, why this is an amazing text this morning. Here Jesus is speaking to the filthiest of the filthy, even more filthy than the leper. He's speaking to the vilest man in Israel's society at that time, a tax collector. Everyone hated tax collectors. Some of us Still do. We shouldn't. You should pray for your enemies and those who despitefully use you. But you have to understand why there was such hatred of this tax collector and tax collectors in general at this time. So I want to explain that to you. I want to tell you why, why this tax collector and all those who associated with him were hated in Christ's day. 
There's a little bit of history about this profession. Jewish tax collectors, um, understand this, they were, they were despised, certainly, by the Jews. And here's why. Because these men were extorting money from their own people, and they were consorting with their avowed enemy, Rome. They, they served Herod. They were ruled by Roman authority, and they then applied that to their Jewish brothers. And, and you understand that the Roman government was occupying Jerusalem at this time, and the tax collectors were basically then in business with them, getting rich at the expense of their Jewish brothers. They were living in this posh lifestyle while their brothers were being taxed to death, quite literally at times. And here's how this works. During this time period, Rome is occupying this area, and, and they can't possibly go around, all these soldiers go around doing all this kind of work of tax collecting, but they have to have the income, the revenue, to keep things flowing and working there. So at this time, what the Romans did is they collected taxes through a system called tax farming, like sharecropping almost. And here's how it worked. Rome would assess the value of each district, right? And they would fix a tax rate on it. And then they would sell the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. And then the buyer, the tax collector, would then pay their assessed figure at the end of the year. But between the time that he bought this franchise, if you will, and the time that came to pay Rome, he could actually gather more than what they required. He could gather as much as he wanted above the assessed rate, and then he could keep that for himself. And that sounds like a good system for a greedy man. And it was. That's what this system did. It, it bred greed and deception of all kinds. And it did this because the tax collectors could do basically whatever they want in this taxing system. They could add fraudulent rates to the people so they could actually get more money for themselves. And they did that frequently. So what they might do is they, they might be required to tax you for your cart that you haul your groceries in. And they would certainly do that. That's what Rome required. But then, to get some for themselves, they would then add on a tax for each wheel on the cart. And then they'd add on another tax for the donkey that pulls the cart. And then they'd add on another tax for the feed that you gave to the donkey to fuel the work that you were doing with the cart. And the fact is, no one could dispute their claims for these things. They couldn't dispute it because these men had the authority of Rome behind them and Roman power driving it. So in the eyes of the Jews at the time that Jesus approaches Levi, the tax collectors were seen as basically extortionists and traitors to Israel. And think about it. This is why they would have been seen that way. One, they're robbing their own people for their own gain. But these men worked side by side with Gentiles. They even lived like the Gentiles lived. And they used their Gentile thug soldiers to shake down their own people to give them the riches that they so desperately wanted and greedily obtained. And so the Jews considered tax collectors to be worse even than Gentile dogs. And as a result of that, tax collectors were even excommunicated from the synagogue. They could not come into the place where they would meet God. In the eyes of the Jews, these men were simply unwanted, unloved, and defiled. They were of no value whatsoever. 
And that's what makes this testimony so radical and so amazing. This is what makes Christ's merciful choice and the transformation of Levi absolutely astounding. Saints, when, when we read this simple little testimony, which on the surface looks very plain, when you read this, though, you, you need to understand something. In this call of Levi to salvation, you should see your own call to salvation. You should have your heart stirred by this, stirred to thankfulness to God, because it should remind you of how Christ mercifully and effectually called you to salvation, even though you were spiritually just as vile as Levi in God's sight, until Christ drew near to you and showed you mercy, mercy to a needy sinner. Don't let what's happened in the past or what you're struggling with presently Make you think that God can't radically change the situation you're in. He did that by drawing near to you through his son. That's what's happening here. So let's look at this here verse by verse in Mark 2, beginning in 13 and 14. And here, here's what's happening here. Here we see Jesus. Jesus is drawing near to the needy. And, and that's important to understand. Even verse 13, again, he's been with the needy people. And he finally gets a little break from them. But when you see him draw near to them in this verse, in verse 13, it should help you remember that in your call to salvation and the call to salvation and the hope that came to us, it came to us from a merciful master. It's not simply that the sovereign, distant deity God saved you. No, he drew near to you through his mercy. And he is your Lord and your master. But he cared for you personally. That's what's going on. That's why verse 13 is really important to the context of Levi's conversion. In verse 13, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. That seems like almost a benign passage, but it's not. Not in light of what he has been doing. Here's Jesus taking a needed break. Jesus was truly God. Truly man, he was tired, he was worn, he was weary of heart even, looking at all the neediness around him. And he he slips away for a moment from his labor, possibly to go enjoy the beauty of his own creation by the sea. But then right behind him, here comes again the needy crowd. And listen, if you've ever done any ministry and you've labored hard with someone for a long period of time and you get through, you take a deep breath and you go... Whew, now I need to rest. Praise God for that person, but I got to rest. I'm weak. And then you get a knock on the door or a phone call, and they say, hey, brother, I need you. Sister, I need you. And you go, okay, let's do this again, you know. Now, I don't know that our hearts are as in tune with God's will as Jesus's was at that point, but Jesus is in tune with the will of God. And he sees these people, these needy people, coming to him once again, quickly after he tries to take a break. And he stops, this is the amazing part. He stops to consider the needs of others as more significant than his own, even his own physical rest. Just in verse 13, don't you see the amazing mercy of Christ? I mean, we would probably stop because they're yelling and trying to get us to stop, but we would probably be dragging our feet a little bit as we walk toward them, but not Jesus. He engages these needy people and gives them what they need most. He teaches them. He ministers to their heart, to their soul. 
It's an amazing picture of his mercy here that is leading us to the more amazing glimpse of his glory in verse 14. the, The mercy we see in 13 cannot even be compared to the mercy we see in 14. Look at, look at verse 14. This is amazing. It's, it's, it's like verse 13 is a mere shadow of the mercy we see here, where, where Jesus' personal mercy is really just elevated to the highest degree as he stops not just to meet the needy, but to seek out the lowly, Levi. And as he passed by, he's walking by the sea, he's teaching these people, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And just think about it a moment in context, okay? Put yourself in Levi's sandals. No one in Israel, no one in Israel would approach Levi with mercy in their hearts. They would approach Levi with clenched fists. But here we see Jesus step out of his way to mercifully seek and save the vilest of sinners in that society and redeem his life for God's glory. Here we see God, a very God, personally come to his lost child and call him to salvation and give him what he doesn't deserve and something his riches could never buy, a redeemed life. Folks, I know theologically most of you here are aware that what this is called is the effectual call of God. But this is the illustration of what it looks like. And it's given this effectual call of God. It's not like the general call of God where all men everywhere are called to repent and believe the gospel. This is the call that comes to those God has chosen from before the foundation of the earth. And they hear it effectually. This is given with sovereign authority. It's a divine command to come to life, Lazarus. But it's also given notice through Jesus' personal mercy. He had compassion on this man. So he stopped and he called him. And aren't you glad for that? (laughs) Because he did that for you and for me. He still does this. He still calls and sanctifies sinners the same way. He still personally calls us and mercifully cleanses us through the hearing of his voice in his word. And when his word is proclaimed faithfully, his sheep will hear his voice effectually. They will be transformed. Their lives will be made new. They will be redeemed. John 10, 27 says this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That's an effectual call. and It produces an evident result. Church, his sheep follow him because he calls with divine authority. It's a divine summons, but it comes to us through mercy. God not giving us what we deserve, but instead showing us grace that transforms our wretched lives and makes us into the trophy of his divine mercy. Levi's response, I think, gives testimony to this. In 2.14, we see his response further in 2.14b. Levi, we understand this. We should understand this about ourselves, but we should certainly understand this about Levi's condition at this time. Levi could not and Levi would not come to Jesus on his own as a disciple and then one day become an apostle. He wouldn't do that because he, just like us before salvation, he was dead in his sins and trespasses. 
He didn't have the dunamai. He didn't have the power within him to come. He was enslaved by his sin. We were too. But when the master called us with his mercy, he gave life to us and he gave life to Levi. Life to the dead. So don't, don't fail to see that when you read this. and Be amazed by it. What we're seeing in 2.14 you know, people, people cry, these, these very subjective people cry out, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. Saints 2.14 contains a miracle. Believe. Believe. We're seeing a miracle here. We're witnessing a miracle that should cause us as now redeemed people to remember and rejoice over the miracle of the way that God has saved us, the miracle of our new birth. This should cause us to find hope because if God did the the greater thing in saving us, he's going to do the lesser thing in sanctifying and using us. His grace empowers both. In in 2.14b to 15, here's what we are, I think, being reminded of again. The call to salvation is, is not just merciful. It's effectual. It produces an evident reaction to the Savior. There will be a testimony of transformation that follows redemption. Here, Levi's call to salvation displays that. It shows us that when Christ mercifully calls a sinner to salvation, he does it with this great divine authority, and he does it effectually. It does transform the sinner. And it's intended to, to bring God glory because he's got a purpose for this calling on your life. We see the evidence of that in Levi. And we see the evidence of the power of God's call of salvation through Levi's immediate obedience to Christ's command. (laughs) He said to him, follow me. And what happens in verse 14b? He said, "Uh, let me count the cost. Let me go ask my brother-in-law to take over the business Let me go see if I can get somebody else to watch the tax booth for a while. I'll put a close sign up and come back. It's not what he says. I think sometimes people try to fill in the gap between he said to him, follow me, in that period, and he rose and followed him. I think they want to say, well, he didn't, come on, he really didn't just get up from the tax booth. I mean, there's money there, right? He's got a responsibility. He didn't do that. He, 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 no, you just got to. You know, kind of read between the lines. No, it's not what it's telling us. It's showing us the radical nature of the call to salvation and the transformation that took place in Levi's life. This is helpful to me because that same radical transformation that saved him is what's going to then sanctify and be able to be used to glorify God in the end of his life and his testimony. He continued to rise and follow Jesus. He persevered to the very end and was martyred for Jesus. But he immediately got up and followed him. Let's think about this. This is radical what happens here. Levi gets up, and this is a picture of salvation if if I could ever think of one. Levi gets up And he turns from his greed. He repents of his greed and he follows his master. He was enslaved to his own desire for more. Now he is enslaved to the sovereign creator and his Lord, Jesus. Luke, Luke 5, 27 and 28, I think makes this more clear to us there when we read that passage. But I'll just simply say this. Luke writes this. Levi left everything, rose up, 
and followed him. He makes it really clear. He walked away from all that had made him comfortable in life. And he walked away from his past as well because he'd been given new life in Christ. He turned from trusting in money to trusting in Jesus. And in that, that obedience and that desire to follow him then signified true saving faith. And it signified true repentance. That's the evidence, saints, that you've been redeemed. You have walked away from what you once were, and you now are living by faith in what Christ has promised. Trusting him to sanctify your past, to sanctify your soul, and use you for his glory and for your good. When Levi responds, I think here, it should just it should make us rejoice when we read this. When he responds to Christ's command to follow him. Because what we're seeing again is, like I said, we're witnessing the power of God's transforming grace. You're seeing it. This is a miracle. And it shows the great power of the mercy and grace combined. Jesus comes with compassion and he saves this man and then he transforms him all by grace. Just think about it. Jesus shows up. And Levi's sitting there at his established place of business. And then Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up, goes, and he never looks back. We, never, we hear about Peter going back to fishing, okay? We never hear about Matthew going back to tax collecting. Levi's trust and obedience here, understand this. This is not merely, I'm going to try hard to follow Jesus. This is not human at all. This is a miracle of grace is what you're witnessing here. His response to Jesus testified that he had been given a new heart, a new heart. He'd been regenerated. And that regeneration, when you're given a new heart in Christ, the heart of Christ is placed in you. The desire of God is given to you, and it produces immediate obedience. It may not be perfect obedience, but there'll be a desire for obedience. And that's what happened here. His regeneration produced immediate obedience. And that just testified furthermore that his heart was transformed not by some long dialogue with Jesus. I'm sure he'd heard about Jesus, maybe even heard Jesus preach. But he is simply showing forth the power of God to create a new heart in a man by the speaking of Christ's word. Same thing happens to us when we are born again by hearing his word. Look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 11. This is what God did for Levi This is what God did for you if you're born again this morning. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And then he says this, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that that they may walk in my instructions, my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. When he takes away this heart of stone, gives us the heart of flesh with it comes a desire for obedience, a desire for our life that's been redeemed to now be submitted to our Lord and our master. And that's what Levi's obedience testified to. It testified that he was, he was empowered now by the spirit of God. By the power of God's grace. 
And he is now free to live for the glory of God. He is, this, this, this grace has empowered him to live in the freedom of regeneration. And his heart being transformed by Jesus' merciful and effectual call then acted on his body, on his mind, on his soul. And he got up and he went. And listen, when, when God gives the effectual call to someone, and we talk about this as a reformed doctrine, it's a biblical doctrine, period. Okay? Understand this. Apart from God speaking to the dead and calling them to live by his word, we ain't getting up. But when he does call us, we get up. He doesn't force us, though. We get up willingly. Levi wasn't forced to get up and follow Jesus against his will. He came willingly to Christ. He left behind his previous life willingly. And here's why. He had a new heart. He'd been regenerated. And now his greediness was as atrocious to him as it was to God. And he left it all behind. And he turned in faith to the richness of Christ's love and mercy to provide for him what he needed most, which was not money, not comfort. He needed forgiveness and redemption, and that's what he got in Christ. Saints, he, he found Jesus and in him the pearl of great price. And unlike all his ill-gotten gain, he now didn't just simply want to hoard Jesus to himself. Because of the power of this transforming grace, he wanted to share Jesus with everyone around him. So he throws a party in verse 15. Look at that with me. In verse 15, we see this transformation by his actions. We see it evidenced in the obvious and joyful way he responds to the command to follow Christ. And then he wants to bring others with him to Christ. And it says, and and as he reclined at table in his house, as Jesus reclined there with Levi, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, who among us, when you've just lost your job, decides to throw a party and invite all your friends? (laughs) One. There's always one. (laughs) No one. You can't afford it. I mean, he just lost his livelihood. He just walked away from his only source of income. And it doesn't seem logical then he would just go forth and say, hey, let's have a party and let all these people come. But that's what he does. And I think he does that as an outward testimony of this true regeneration and transformation that's taken place in his heart. He now knew he was a new creation in Christ. No one would come to his house. I mean, even some of the sinners and tax collectors probably thought, there's some guys I just won't hang out with. But now he knows that's not me anymore. I've been transformed. I've been redeemed. And I want these people to come and I want them to know why. Saints, he, he is rejoicing when he throws this party. He's rejoicing with Jesus and he's rejoicing over Jesus. In Luke 529, it tells us that he is feasting with Christ. And whoever else he can invite in. He's celebrating. And what I love is he, he's not like some who, who think, well, you know, I got, I've, I've gotten saved and, and I've gotten my, my things, you know, are, are in line here, I, I believe. And, and I'm just going to kind of hang back and I'm not really going to step out in faith at this point and be a really open and direct witness. You know, that, that's a little too much. I'm not prepared. It's not my personality trait. You know what? Levi, Levi takes a different route. 
He wants to celebrate his new birth with others, not by himself. So what's he do? He invites others to join him. I'm sure he did that. He seems to have already become really a joyful evangelist. It's like as if this transformation actually changed him, even on the outside. I think Levi's evident transformation then gave hope to the sinners that surrounded him in that house. Here's why I think it gave hope to them. These, These sinners who gathered there, these tax collectors and sinners that gathered there in Levi's home, here's what they knew that the Pharisees didn't know. They knew they were defiled. They knew they were vile in God's sight. They knew that they couldn't approach a holy God. But that day they learned something brand new. They learned that God himself would mercifully and powerfully come to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They could see the joy all over Levi's face. The amazement of the grace that transformed this greedy tax collector into this joyful evangelist who welcomed them into his home. I have to say that I, I picture what happened here in very vivid ways in my mind. Thinking about the way he must have traveled home to celebrate Jesus' call on his life. And I think of it this way. If that was me in that situation, I had no hope in this world. And Christ himself shows up and he calls me. I want to go out and tell everybody I know. I could just see Levi running toward his house saying, Hey, you, come here. Drop your taxes. Come here. Hey, you, prostitutes, beggars, lepers, unwanted people of Israel, come with me. I want to invite you to meet the Lord and Savior who draws near to sinners. I think that's what's happening here. That happened in my conversion. I was converted in the county jail in Okmulgee, and I went to be tried and went through the whole court system situation. was found not guilty by God's grace, which I was guilty in other ways, but by God's grace I was not at that time. I busted out of that courthouse, and the first guy I met at the bottom of the steps was a guy I went to grade school with. Hadn't seen him in years. And I must have sounded like a crazy evangelist at that moment because I told him everything about how the Lord Jesus met me in this jail cell in Okmulgee. There have been times in my life since then that I've wondered, Lord, what could you ever do with a man like me? And I think back on that moment. You allowed me to glorify the name of Jesus to someone who needed to hear the gospel. Who is sufficient for such things? Not me. But his grace transformed me. It transforms you as well. When Jesus drew near to Levi, that's what happened. His life was radically transformed, evidentially transformed, and he wanted everyone around him to know it. I think that's what you want as well. But if you let your past failures and your past sins or even present ones rob you of this joyful blessing, you will be grieved of heart. Listen, your past has been forgiven. You are a new creation in Christ. You are promised the grace to persevere to the end by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, your Savior, and your Lord. This is what you have now. And if you don't have that this morning, if you haven't experienced that kind of transformation, I have good news for you. There is hope for the vilest of sinners. You're looking at one of them. You can experience 
the grace to set you free from your past by turning to Christ today in faith and turning from your sins, repenting of your sins. That's exactly what Levi does here when he when he leaves behind the tax booth and draws near to Christ who drew near to him first and called him to follow him the rest of his life. Levi had no hope in this world of being useful in the kingdom of God up to that point because of his sins. But then when Jesus called him, but then he was transformed by Jesus's mercy and then would be used as an instrument of grace to joyfully testify to the power and the effectual sacrifice of Jesus Christ who redeemed him from his sins and his past. And and let me just say this. Jesus still does that today through the hearing of his word. That's how he calls us. That's how he transforms us. That's how he sanctifies us. And I believe the Lord is calling failing saints here today and sinners to look to the testimony of Levi and his conversion and his apostleship even. So that you would not lose heart in light of your past or present failures. But rather, instead of losing heart, you would look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. According to Hebrews, Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's put Levi there for a moment. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Saints, I don't want you to be weary or faint-hearted. Your past or present failures do not determine the effectiveness of God's merciful calling on your life. Don't ever buy that lie. Your past or present failures don't determine the effectiveness of God's mercy and grace in calling you to be his child. He's going to use you to glorify his name. That's why he calls you, and that's why you're not in heaven yet. You still got work to do. And he is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he's able, he is able to transform a tax collector and call him to be an apostle. He's able to transform lumps of clay into trophies of grace. That's what Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And here's how he transforms us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, his produce, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we will. So don't lose heart. Don't lose heart because even in verse 10, there's hope. There's a great hope for us, no matter what our past and present failures are. He says there in verse 10, you are God's poimai, poimai, workmanship. You know what that means? We get a word poem from that word poimai. You are God's poem of praise. Be encouraged. He who begins a song of praise in you will complete it for his glory and for your good. So don't lose heart because of your past 
but look to Christ, who is the security of your future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing grace you've shown us, even through the testimony here of Levi's call to salvation and future call to apostleship. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel that would be able to take lumps of clay and transform us into vessels of honor to bring praise to your name. I pray that no saint in this place today walks out of here discouraged by their past, but rather rejoicing in the hope of your grace. And I pray that anyone among us here who is not born again, today would be the day of their salvation. I pray that you would open eyes and you would remove blinders, that they would see the glory of Christ and see the depth of their sin and look at what you did through your Son to redeem sinners like us and find hope and salvation in Christ. I pray that in his name. Amen.